Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, the podcast that recounts the greatest feats from the peloton's past in the trattoria on the mountain of cycling history. Brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. We begin Recycle's Giro d'Italia season with a two-part episode on the tale of the legend of the Lion King. Alfredo Binder's record of 41 stage wins in the Giro d'Italia stood for 70 years, until Mario Cipollini went one better. With his wavy blonde locks, bulging biceps and a penchant for an eye-catching skin suit, Super Mario was as ruthless as he was fast. Cipo made headlines and Giro history, but few friends during his controversial and colourful career. It's one of the quirks of a stat-heavy sport that sees us compare the incomparable. Drawing from more than a century of races, when a long-standing record falls, we can pit one of the Giro d'Italia's most complete riders with a man who took specialising in sprinting to a new level of niche. But when Mario Cipollini soared to successive stage victories in the 2003 Giro, the man they called the Lion King equalled, then surpassed a mark set in 1933. Some 14 years after he'd carved the first notch in his Giro bedpost, Chippo wrote his name into the record books in the rainbow bands he had won seven months earlier at Zolder. The author of that 70-year record was Alfredo Binder, a rider known as cycling's first cannibal. In his book Giro d'Italia, the story of the world's most beautiful bike race, Colin O'Brien describes the man to win five editions of the race as a rider of unparalleled ability of such unique talent that he dominated almost every race he entered. Such was Binder's vice-like grip on his national race, the organisers even had to pay him not to turn up one year. Most people thought his record would stand forever, until a machine seemingly designed for the sole purpose of winning Giro stages came along, all muscles, hair gel and macho flamboyance. On the surface, the cold and detached Binder was a man who had about as much in common with the charismatic Cipollini as a smooth Barolo to Grappa. One was a champion vintage to savour long on the lips. Another, a coarse digestif, enjoyed, if that's the word, at the very end of a meal, something that came and went in a matter of seconds. And, 
Once it hit the spot, it left behind a bad aftertaste. In Montecatini Terme, in his native Tuscany, a bidon's throwaway from his grandmother's grave, Cipollini went one better than Binder by getting the best of Australia's Robbie McEwen and the new star of Italian sprinting, Alessandro Pitacchi. Not that this made an impression on everyone. He holds the record now, O'Brien says, of a rider who won at least one stage in all but his 14th and final Giro. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's a thing. But being Italian, riding for Italian teams and in an Italian race, he was able to focus on one thing, and one thing entirely, and that was winning Giro d'Italia stages. Without wanting to be too dismissive of a rider who also won Milan-San Remo, three editions of Gent-Wevelgem and 12 tour stages, albeit infamously without ever making it to the Champs-Élysées, O'Brien adds, For the most part, he was a big fish in a relatively small pond, and I think to mention Cipollini's name in relation to all-time greats like Binder doesn't really cut it. Before Cippo came Cesare, his older brother. Nine years Mario's senior, Cesare cleaned up in the amateur ranks and went on to ride the Giro on nine occasions, albeit with little fanfare. While his only professional win came in the Giro dell'Emilia in 1983, he had a word of warning for his colleagues in the late 80s. Win as much as you can now, he said, because when my brother turns pro, you won't get a look in. Cesare's prediction was not without foundation. Little Mario graced the top step of the podium in his age group and in the amateur ranks a whopping 125 times before becoming a neo-pro with the Del Tongo team in 1989. And it was wholly fitting that his first victory with the big boys should come in his first appearance in his national race, although it took a little time for the new kid on the block to find his feet. Dubbed one of the toughest in history, the 1989 edition of the Giro was loaded with mountains and hilly transitional stages. With no rest days and a parkour that largely eschewed the coast, it wasn't exactly an ideal race for a rider of Cipollini's persuasions to take a bow. It hardly helped that, in the race's curtain raiser in Sicily, Cippo fluffed his lines, failing to make even the top 10 in Catania. The 22-year-old fastman was then twice denied in the bunch sprints by Switzerland's Urs Fruhler, on stage 7 to Rome, then stage 11 to Mantua. With the Dolomites approaching, Cippo had one remaining window to strike the flat 148km stage 12 between Mantua and Mira, just west of Venice. It was the Panasonic team of Dutch stars Jean-Paul van Poppel and Eric Broekink, winner of the opening stage and the current Maglia Rossa respectively, who controlled the peloton as it rampaged towards the finish. A long-range effort from the Frenchman Francis Moreau of Fajor came to nothing, and a bunch sprint was on the cards. Keeping faith in their man, the Del Tongo team protected Cipollini on the fast approach to Mira with both the world champion Maurizio Fondriest and GC man Franco Chioccioli, who would win the Giro two years later, chipping in. And once Cippo was launched on the home straight, there really was no stopping him. Even a crash to his right could not perturb a man hell-bent on glory, with Cipollini holding off the Spaniard Jose Luis Rodriguez and Van Poppel for his first professional win the towering Tyro holding both arms aloft 
in what would become a familiar sight over the decade to come. Little did anyone know that this was the start of a sequence that would see this cocky youngster with his bushy mane of blonde hair become the biggest stage collector in the Giro's history. Finally, Mario, you hit the target at the third attempt. The interviewer teed up the Stage 12 winner in the post-race broadcast as a media scrum engulfed Cipollini. I needed a win, and after coming so close, I demonstrated that I could do it, he replied, calm and composed in front of the cameras. I owe today's win to my teammates who have done an incredible job, as you can see from the helicopter. I need to thank especially Maurizio and even Franco Chioccioli, who really slaved away for me even though he's going for the win tomorrow. So focused was Chippo that he was entirely unaware of the riders crashing around him. It's like entering the trenches, he said. You basically risk your life at all times. And I just went for it. I don't even know who went down. I'm sorry for them, because crashing is always dangerous. But us sprinters don't realise the risks we take. Had finishing runner-up twice helped him go one better? Yes. In fact, today I was even more eager to do well. Also because there's not much left in the race for the sprinters. As you saw, I went long. When I saw Van Poppel go, I knew that was the moment. I jumped and I managed to pass him. It's an incredibly important day for me. I hope it won't be the last. Practically everything that we associate with Cipollini was present that day. The teamwork, the powerful acceleration, the fast but slightly reckless legs, the glorious wingspan in celebration and the preening in front of the camera afterwards. As John Foote explains in Pedalare Pedalare, his history of Italian cycling, tall and powerfully built, he could do one thing extremely well, sprint. Cipollini came into his own in the very last part of every stage, perfectly set up by his teammates, who prepared the sprint for him. The sight of him crossing the finish line first his massively long arms high in the air in triumph, became a familiar one for cycling fans across the world. That Cipollini was able to break through in an era when the likes of Van Poppel, Jamaluddin Abdujaparov and Olaf Ludwig ruled supreme, underlined that the muscle man from Luca was the real deal. Even back then, he had the ingredients to become not only one of the sport's greatest ever sprinters, but an entertainer who would pull in the crowds. In his second pro season, Chippo made it two Giro stage wins, then three in his third year and four in his fourth. Italy had witnessed the birth of a champion. Back-to-back wins in Gent-Wevelgem made him big in Belgium too, where he was dubbed Rick van Cipollini on account of his resemblance to Rick van Steenbergen, the strong, speedy Belgian who dominated the peloton in the 40s and 50s. Sports doctor Ivan van Mol who worked with Cipollini early in his career and is now a veteran member of the De Kernink Quickstep medical team, compared the young Chippo to the Belgian sensation Freddy Martens, saying he was the classiest and the fastest sprinter in the world. He is capable of a great deal, but he has one problem. He is raving mad, Van Mol told compatriot Noel Troyers for his book Kings of Cycling. They always said Eddie Plankart was mad, but Cipollini makes Plankart look sensible. He is mad about women, cars and speed.
It was not long before Chippo was portrayed as a happy-go-lucky womanizer, whose roving eye gave Joey Tribbiani from Friends a run for his money. A foolhardy fast man who made light of only writing off three cars at most in his mid-twenties. Speaking to Troyers before Cipollini had tried his hand at the Tour de France and the Vuelta Espana, Van Moll also described him as lazy. From June onwards, there is nothing you can do to get him on a bike. The drive and the will have gone. All he wants to do is then go skimming over the water on his sea scooter, enjoying the sun, sea and the chance to relax and do nothing. Van Moll had a point. For when Chippo did break a habit and take time out of his beach schedule to do his job, his heart clearly wasn't in it. The Italian failed to finish all eight of his tours and all five of his attempted vueltas. Indeed, the sight of Cipollini clambering off his bike as soon as the mountains loomed on the horizon became an enduring one. The call of the parasol was just too great. The Italian stallion might have been proving himself a one-trick pony, but it was a very effective trick. Blessed with dollops of self-confidence and self-assurance, Chippo could never be accused of being too modest. When Abdu Japarov, the Tashkent terror, once accused him of using foul tactics, Chippo snapped back, At present, I'm so fast that I have no need to hinder anyone else. All I need is a little space, then nobody can catch me. The finishing banner is my only point of reference. I don't see my rivals. If there was Cipollini the cyclist, there was also Cipollini the man, although the boundaries between the two were blurred. Chippo's achievements on the bike were indistinguishable from his comments off it and how he looked both in and out of the saddle. Many have claimed that Chippo carefully cultivated a persona to wind up his rivals and cause a distraction, but then again, it might just have been Chippo expressing himself as only he knew how. Before he started hitting the gym and curating a wardrobe to match that of a West End theatre, the Lion King was all about his mane. Often grown shoulder length, this wavy blonde boof made him one of the most distinctive riders in the peloton. Chippo soon chopped and changed up to glistening ringlet curls, a hairstyle that was responsible for one of his more memorable monikers, Mussolini. His changing appearance became an enjoyable sideshow. Over time, Cipollini graduated from the narcissist who would gladly watch himself in a handlebar mirror on the home straight, if only it didn't ruin his aerodynamics, to a man so comfortable in his own skin that he reveled in putting on costumes, playing the showman and infuriating race organisers with his antics, which invariably involved non-regulation kit of increasing hilarity. The notorious human body, tiger, and all pink skin suits, as well as the array of coloured shorts, were all hard to purge from the mind, but it was the Roman toga and gold-leaf crown worn ahead of the key Sestriere stage of the 1999 Tour de France, in apparent homage to Julius Caesar, which perhaps made the biggest splash. He even wore one of Brazilian Ronaldo's Inter Milan shirts on the podium at the Giro, after swapping it for a bicycle. And then there is always the time he puffed away on a cigarette mid-stage. Cipollini dressed eccentrically for the cameras, was sometimes even fined for his increasingly absurd outfits, and played up to his film star and playboy image, footrights in pedalare pedalare. He would turn up in tight-fitting suits as a zebra or a tiger, 
The organisers of the tour and the Vuelta lost patience with his antics after a while, and he was excluded from the tour on a number of occasions. The governing body feared it was becoming a circus. If putting on costumes became a trademark thorn that Cipollini willfully pressed into the sides of ASO, RCS and other race organisers, it was the removal of clothing that often presented a greater motivation for Mario. As Daniel Free wrote in 2014 in Pro Cycling magazine, the togas, the non-regulation shorts, the naked ad campaigns, the naked Pamela Anderson pictures on his handlebar stem, the naked trist with glamour model Magda Gomez on a beach in Sardinia in 2006, caught on camera by paparazzo, with Cipollini, there was barely a dull or fully clothed moment. With a trademark grin, the agent provocateur told a Spanish journalist in 1993, an orgasm lasts only for a few seconds, a victory lasts forever. A soundbite, Freeb noted, that could also be his epitaph. With victories in his first four editions of the Giro, Cipollini proved to be a potent sprinter on home roads. But he still needed to perform on the centre stage, the Tour de France. Having picked up a hat-trick of wins in Paris-Nice in 1992, before his four scalps in Italy, Cippo made his eagerly anticipated tour debut that July, where he received a real wake-up call. There were zero bunch sprints in the opening six stages of what proved to be a baptism of fire. Fed up with the slim pickings, Chippo got in the break in stage seven to Valkenburg, only to blow up before the finish and withdraw from the tour with his tail between his legs. His highest finish had been 16th place. In Kings of Cycling, Troyes quotes an unnamed source on the Italian's rude awakening. Cipollini thought he could shine like he did in the Giro, but he couldn't. He was totally confused and disenchanted, and that's when he probably realised that he could no longer stay with it, and that there was still a long way to go. After a brilliant Giro, he felt enough was enough. Before the tour, he said that winning stages in France would be easier for him. He now knows better. A similar fate befell Cipollini on his Vuelta debut in 1994, but this time he did not even make it through the third day. To his credit, however, at that point, he'd made amends in France at the first possible instance by winning the opening road stage of the 1993 tour following the prologue. Victory for GBMG Maglificio in the team time trial two days later gave Chippo the Mayo Jean the first of six occasions he'd wear yellow over the course of his career. While Chippo would pick up 12 tour stages in total, he never flexed his muscles on the Champs-Élysées, rarely making it beyond the first mountain range of the race. In 1995, with two sprint wins in the bag and the prospect of Alpe d'Huez looming, he allegedly turned up the air conditioning in his room in the hope of making himself ill so he could justify an early withdrawal. The tactic backfired. All those months spent on the beach meant Chippo's body easily withstood the heat, and it was his roommate and lead-out man Silvio Martinello who was struck down with fever. Still, when Martinello tore off his race number midway through the next stage, Mario took it as his cue to join him in the broom wagon. 
Cipollini's love-hate relationship with the tour would continue until things came to a head the same day he made Giro history. But there was plenty of road to cover before then. Although he had a taste for flash cars, Cipollini's success often came down to his use of the train. It would be wrong to claim that Cippo and his teammates invented the sprint train. The likes of Rick Van Loy and Jean-Paul Van Poppel both relied on teammates guiding them into position before they pulled the trigger. But it's fair to say that no one before the Seiko team that emerged from the shadow of Del Tongo, GBMG and Mercatone Uno had employed the tactic with such precision. The sprint train was clearly something that evolved over time. Speaking to Troyers early in his career, Chippo described his style of sprinting, citing his teammate Eros Poli as a key component in getting him to the line in pole position. My favourite sprint begins 300 metres out, said Chippo. I launch myself from a long way back and head forward at full speed. The first thing I do is look for Eros Poli's wheel. He is my engine. He is a giant of a teammate, literally and figuratively. He has unbelievable knowledge of his craft and has incredibly broad shoulders. He protects me from the wind. If he starts making his way to the front, it is just as if the Red Sea was opening in front of us. I know exactly where and when he will drop off the pace. And then I take over. I go straight ahead, no longer looking at anything or anyone. I push the biggest gear and, if conditions are good, I go hell for leather. I can keep going at full speed for a very long way. I do miss a certain explosiveness, however. I'm not a jump sprinter like Marino Basso was in his day, or like Abdu is nowadays. I sprint more in the style of the buffalo, Guido Bontempi, or like Rick Van Steenbergen used to. By the mid-90s, when Cipollini was entering his pomp, the era of the Treno Rosso, or Red Train, had really taken off. Saeco was built around Cipollini, with their sole focus delivering their man to the line ahead of all his rivals. It is certainly telling that Poli's only professional win, that wondrous, career-defining adventure over Von Tu and the heart-in-mouth descent to Carpentras, came in a year where Cipo was omitted from the team for the tour. Saeco's iron grip on the peloton and the red train's tendency to always arrive on time consigned the Giro breakaway to the scrap heap. And the more success they had, the more it was replicated by rival outfits. As Foote says in his study of Italian cycling, Cipollini was the perfect rider for the postmodern televisual sport cycling had become. With fewer and fewer successful breaks coming to fruition and the dominance of the teams, more and more races ended up being decided at the sprint. Teams now had this down to a fine art, and specialist Grigari were assigned the role of preparing the sprint, which required perfect timing and positional sense. In this brave new world, Cipollini was a superstar. One person who was left cold by all this was Colin O'Brien, whose interest in the sport coincided with the meteoric rise of Cipollini. For O'Brien, Chippo came to be the epitome of that specific era of hyper-specialisation. He was the leading light of a late 90s version of a sprinter that O'Brien concedes was part of the history of cycling, just not a very compelling one. It made the sport, if not a foregone conclusion, then certainly very predictable. 
If you're a fan of sport, and sport as in competition, I don't think it's a very interesting thing to watch, O'Brien says. There are fans of athletes, and there are fans of success who would disagree with that, but their main focus is their hero, who is winning everything. But if you're just a fan of competition, somebody like Mario Cipollini is really quite boring. As a comparison, O'Brien cites the example of Mark Cavendish, a rider who emerged just as Cipollini was hanging up his shoes. Cav enjoyed all the advantages of a sprint train at HTC Columbia, but didn't rely on it in his quest to cross the line first. Over the years, Cavendish has shown that he's able to win in different ways, O'Brien says. He had racecraft and, to me, was a more dynamic character. More on character later. But first, the tumbling of that long-standing record. This is not the story of the man whose record was taken 70 years on by Cipollini. But a little background won't go amiss as we bid to unpick the achievements that consigned Alfredo Binder to second place in the history books. The first rider to win five editions of the Giro and a triple world champion, Binder also won Milan-San Remo twice and the Tour of Lombardy four times. This unparalleled all-round ability made him, in O'Brien's words, cycling's first cannibal. Binder's rule was not a benign hegemony, O'Brien says in his book Giro d'Italia. His dominance became so overbearing that his detractors called him Il Dittore, the dictator. An apt comparison, perhaps, given his later adoration of Benito Mussolini. Binder's breakthrough came in the 1925 Giro as a 23-year-old debutante. His victory helped precipitate the end of the career of the legendary campionissimo, Costante Giridengo. Four wins in his first five Giro d'Italia appearances made Binder unpopular in the eyes of both his rivals and the Tifosi, who quickly tired of his domination, booed his brilliance and took issue with his cold, detached, pompous character. He was dubbed Il Grande Antipatico by a journalist at the time, the Great Unlikable. To his rivals, his presence made their failure an almost foregone conclusion, O'Brien writes. To the fans, that made the racing boring, which meant that to the organisers, Binder's virtuosity was also an inherent vice. His mere appearance at the start threatened to damage, even destroy the race, and so they paid him to stay home. This happened in 1930, when La Gazzetta, which ran the Giro, offered Binder the equivalent of the winner's prize not to turn up at the Grande Partenza. That meant he earned 22,500 lira without so much as pinning on a race number or turning a crank, O'Brien writes. Given professional cycling's proudly avaricious nature, that coup must surely rank as the greatest success in the history of the sport. Instead, Binder headed across the border to race the Tour, where he won two stages and perhaps could have won the entire thing were it not for a crash on stage seven that saw him concede an hour. He later withdrew, which he described as his one great regret, in a bid to chase up the money he was owed by the Giro organisers, who had still not paid up. The tenth of fourteen children, Binder was, like Cipollini, a snappily dressed and famed ladies' man. 
He was also a heavy smoker and quite lazy off the bike, often sleeping in till noon. He gave his successor a run for his money in the Subriquet stakes, with the fans calling him the trumpeter of Gitiglio. Like Chippo, he even had a bike-riding brother, the trombone-playing Albino, who often supported him as a loyal Gregario during races. Unlike Cipollini, he excelled over a variety of terrains, and not simply in the closing moments of flat stages. He was the complete package, O'Brien writes. Powerful on the flats, imperious in the mountains, said to be blessed with a seemingly effortless pedal stroke and an easy elegance under pressure. His contemporary René Vietto once said that you could balance a glass of milk on Binder's back at the beginning of a race and it would still be there, unspilled, at the end. Perhaps the only minor criticism that you could make of Binder the rider was not even a reflection of the man, but of his rivals. He lacked a consistent challenger. Giradengo's career was in decline while his apprentice, Liarco Guerra, only occasionally got the better of Binder. After a fifth Giro win in 1933 and a 41st stage win, Binder's form tapered off and he retired three years later to become a team manager presiding over Tour de France victories from the likes of Gino Bartoli, Fausto Coppi and Gastoni Nencini. While the careers of Coppi and Bartoli are more readily celebrated today, there is a serious case for Binder, the man who nurtured those careers off the back of his own, being one of the greatest cyclists ever to have lived, right up there with Eddie Merckx. All of which begs the question, just how did a flat-track bully like Cipollini come to be mentioned in the same breath as Binder? Put simply, by turning on the style in the final kilometre of Giro stages more often than his predecessor. In the event, the ageing Cipollini's biggest obstacle to making history was the new Cipollini, his compatriot Alessandro Pataki. Forget fast cars and trains, here was a rider so explosive his nickname was Alejet, although Pataki's engine was one that took many more years to warm up. It wasn't until Pataki's sixth Grand Tour, his third Vuelta, that the Italian finally opened his account in 2000 for the Fassapotolo team. The next year, he tasted the tour for the first time, before returning to the Giro in 2002, where he twice placed runner-up, narrowly missing out on the final day to Cipollini. He ended that year as part of Cippo's lead-out train. The Lion King became king of the jungle in the worlds at Zolder. But things were different in the 2003 Giro. Pataki, now 29, was finally ready to emerge from his mentor's shadow, even if Chippo, by winning a sensational six stages in 2002, was now within touching distance of Binder's landmark. In the opening stage to Lecce, Pataki beat Cipollini in the bunch sprint to take the first Magliarossa of the race, a fine way to secure the first of 22 career wins in La Corsa Rossa. Supplying the voiceover to the documentary The Quest, Saeco at the 2003 Giro d'Italia, Phil Liggett summarised the state of play. Alessandro Pataki, the rising Italian sprinter, beats Chippo to the line. It is an uncharacteristic defeat for the Lion King, who has spent the past decade virtually without rival in the bunch sprints. 
Pataki was in the top five the following two days before being beaten by the Australian Robbie McEwen in Vino Valentia on stage four. The next day, in Sicily, Pataki got back to winning ways, once again getting the better of Cipollini in Catania. The hat-trick came on stage six to Avezzano, as fans got the impression that they were witnessing a changing of the guard. Still one victory away from matching Binder's 41 wins, Cipollini's quest was being comprehensively derailed by Pataki. In the words of Liggett, Beating this sprinting phenomenon is proving to be a much harder challenge than Chippo or anyone else could have expected. But Super Mario kept his cool and made light work of a punchy climb near the finish at Arezzo to power past McEwen and level the scores on stage 8. Just what you would expect from a rider who, a year earlier in his Annus Mirabilis, had finally tamed the Poggio to win Milan San Remo. Will Super Mario prove to have what it takes to own the record outright? Liggett asked. We'd get the answer the next day on stage 9 to Monticatini Terme, just 30 kilometres east of Cipollini's hometown of Luca. As was so often the case in the era of the sprint train, the six-man break that day sat up with 20 kilometres remaining as the latest showdown between Cipollini, Pataki and McEwen looked set to play out on the tricky finishing circuit in Monticatini Terme. In the fight for Chippo's wheel, Pataki and the Latvian rider Andris Nordus came to blows in the final kilometre. The pair butted heads and swung an arm at each other, with only Nordus making contact, an action that would see him later disqualified. The Italian rider, meanwhile, was penalised a minute and docked points in the sprinter's classification. It was Chippo's first season at the Domina Vacanze team, but the tactics were the same. Daniele Bernati fronted the train before passing the buck to Chippo's lead-out man, Giovanni Lombardi. They had to negotiate a final obstacle in the form of a tight right-hand bend, which resulted in a crash just behind Nordus, slowing the pink jersey, local rider Stefano Garzelli. Chippo and his rivals were not held up, though and the Italian stallion galloped to his historic win in front of a huge home crowd of Tuscan Tifosi by half a wheel ahead of the fast-closing McEwen, with Pataki shaking his head, rolling over for third. An emotional Cipollini dedicated his historic win to his late father Vivaldo, an amateur rider himself in his day. I'll tell you something strange, a choked-up Cipollini added. My father's side of the family is from near here, and he used to bring me often to visit my grandmother, who's buried in the cemetery on the hill there. She died when I was only three years old. When I was a little kid, my dad and I would ride by here on our bikes. We would always stop to see her grave. When I was riding by the finish on the first lap, I looked up and saw the cemetery. So I prayed to my grandmother and my father to give me all the energy to do it. Overcome by emotion, Chippo went silent before composing himself to talk through his win. I rode with guts today. It was a nervous stage and I needed good legs. I don't have the jump like McEwen does and I managed to hold him off. That was a win that I can be really proud of. I really wanted to win today and for sure there were a lot of people who wanted me to win. And that gave me a boost. On Binder's record, 
Cipollini was uncharacteristically modest and gracious. I never thought I could break the record. I'm now the leading stage winner of the Giro, but I don't really deserve it. I'm a champion in the sprint, but I can't be compared with great champions like Binder or Merckx. But at 36 years old, I'm just trying to do my best. Social Security even sent me a letter the other day to see if I was ready for retirement. Not yet. So, what happened next? We'll pick up the next chapter of Cipollini's life so far, no less controversial and explosive, in the second half of this episode of Recycle by Eurosport, brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Part two will land in your feed as the peloton hits the streets of Turin on Saturday for the beginning of the 2021 Giro d'Italia. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can find Pete looking for a non-team issue Mario Cipollini skin suit on eBay, worn once. You can also follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK. Plus, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.